Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the studio today is Dr. Eric Emerson, who's director of the South Carolina Department of Archives and History. And we're going to talk about the South Carolina state flag, its origins, and current legislation to standardize its reproduction. So, Eric, welcome back to the journal. Oh, thank you, Walter. It's always great to be here. You are chair of a committee that's supposed to come up with an official design for our state flag. How did all of this come about? Well, um, uh, there was a gentleman who had been uh, always been a fan of the state flag who had noticed that periodically the Palmetto and, and the Crescent to some extent would change on the state flag. And uh, he noticed that the Palmetto did not look like the Palmetto of his youth that he had seen on flags. Um, and so he did a little bit of research and found out there was no standardized state flag. There's no um, code that establishes what a state flag looks like. And so uh, he approached his senator and representative and, and asked them if they would introduce legislation that would create a, a committee to study this. And um, we were asked to, to testify due to Department of Archives and History's role in establishing a, a standardized state flag at, at the beginning of the 20th century. So I gave a couple of presentations before Senate subcommittees and uh, legislation was introduced to create a state flag study committee. Uh, the legislation was never passed, but what it was, it was actually uh, became a proviso in last in last year's budget. Uh, explain proviso for well, it's, a, it's a form of temporary legislation that lasts for a certain amount of time that can be renewed every year. Um, there are certain provisos, for example, in our budget that have been around some time that, that we try to get codified periodically. But, but this proviso was established for a very finite amount of time. It was supposed to end on February 1st of this year. And um, we've asked for an extension of that. I was going to say, we're past February the 1st now. <laughs> That's right. We've, we've asked for an extension in, uh, probably till June 30th is how long this one will last when, okay. when our work should be done. And folks, uh, in terms of full disclosure, I'm a member of that committee. And who are the other individuals on the committee, Eric? Robbie Dawkins. It was Senator Hugh Leatherman's appointee of the committee. Um, Scott Mallark. Representative Jay Lucas, the Speaker of the Houses. And he was the man who sort of got this started. Absolutely. This is, he was the one who, who first asked for the legislation to be introduced. And then Paul Koch, who represents the Department of Administration, and then myself as Director of the Department of Archives and History, I chair the committee. Okay. And Department of Administration is actually the state body that purchases flags that fly over state buildings, correct? That's correct. So that, that really explains his, his presence on the committee. Absolutely. We've had several meetings, but as we started to delve into the history of the flag, frankly, in terms of research, documentary research, visual research, artistic research, I have found it to be a fascinating journey because I had in my library a pamphlet that was produced by the State Archives back at the turn of the last century by Dr. Alex Sally with this ugly little skinny, pencil skinny uh, stump of a, of a palmetto tree, that's what it was supposed to be, and um, a few fronds against a really nice dark blue background. But that wasn't what the flag looked like in 1861. It wasn't what it looked like in 1895 or 84 under Ben Tillman. And it certainly doesn't look like the one that's flying on state buildings today. So what gives? Where should we start? Well, th that flag was a creation of A.S. Sally, and it's a kind of a, a long story, but but to encapsulate it and shorten you know, it up. No, I think it's a <laughs> I think it's a fascinating story. It's it's a very South Carolina story. It, it is. Um, in in 1906, uh, Senator Ben Tillman was visiting Clemson College, which he had helped establish, and he wanted to present the Corps of Cadets a flag, and so he presented them with a South Carolina flag. But he was disappointed in the way it looked, and he made comments about the way the flag looked, and he thought the state flag should be something else. So the head of the uh, textiles department at Clemson, uh, Charles Doggett, uh, corresponded with A.S. Sally, who was the first secretary of the History Commission, really the forerunner of the Department of Archives and History, and asked him about the South Carolina state flag. And Sally wrote him back saying that there's no real account of the state flag, but I've drawn it up in my notes. And this is a very A.S. Sally kind of thing to do, because there were accounts of the state flag. There were accounts of what the, the first official flag looked like in 1861. There were uh, certainly 
samples of it in the United States. And if he couldn't have found those, he at least could have found articles from the Charleston Mercury and the Daily Courier that would describe the flag. And then there were samples on stationery and that, that he might may or may not been able to find. But he inserted himself into the the discussion with that statement. Just like he kind of inserted himself to become the first secretary of the Archives and History Commission, because wasn't he working for the, or he was the staff of the South Carolina Historical Society at that time, and then they pushed to have the official Archives Commission, and guess what? All of a sudden, the person that they then hired was the man who proposed that the, uh, that the state agency be created. That's Absolutely. I mean, that's that's, that's very much a uh, Sally. And so in, in uh, 1909, South Carolina needed flags to be designed for the President William Howard Taft was coming to South Carolina. And uh, Governor Martin Ansel uh, turned to Sally, since Sally had proclaimed himself to know what the flag should look like, turned to Sally and asked him to design a flag. And Sally did so. And Governor Ansel thought it was a really beautiful flag. Well, immediately following that, Sally got together with John Joseph McMahon, who was a representative from Richland, and they drafted legislation that would create an official standardized state flag. Uh, It was Act 406. It was introduced the next year during the legislative session. And it said that Clemson Clemson College uh, would be responsible for producing the flags in various sizes, but they would have to produce them at cost. And that they tied that legislation to the January 28, 1861 resolution that created an official state flag, the first official state flag, and inserted a statement at the very end that said all of this had to be approved by the Secretary of the History Commission, A.S. Sally. So in, in essence, he had legislation drawn up that allowed him to create the state's official state flag. And thus, you come up with the flag that, that you referred to in that, that pamphlet, this kind of not very attractive state flag that was the official state flag from 1910 to 1940. All right. Well, let's back up a little bit in terms of history, like 200 years, because when I think of the origins of the state flag, of course, I I go back to the Battle of Sullivan's Island uh, and William Moultrie talking about the banner which he designed that was flying over the Palmetto Log Fort, uh, where the Americans defeated both the Navy and the British Navy and the British Army in a tremendous victory before the Declaration of Independence. But, and that flag was blue, and he described it was the blue of the uniforms of his men. And in the upper left quadrant, there was a crescent. Now, one of the things that our committee has discussed because it keeps floating around is, oh, it's a gorget, it's a gorget, it's a gorget. Well, folks, a gorget is a piece of military decoration worn on the chest. It's a holdover from medieval times. But that's not what William Moultrie, the man who designed the flag, he said it was a crescent like the crescent in the caps of his troops. And that was a very common military decoration on both sides of the Atlantic. In fact, in fact there was a Canadian uh, unit during the Revolution that had a crescent in their caps as well. So we think about the Battle of Sullivan's Island, and there have been paintings certainly later than the battle that show Sergeant Jasper putting the flag back uh, after it had been t- you know, blown away by the British, and it's blue, and there's the white crescent. Sometimes there's a strip across it that says Liberty. So... That was the flag that I thought of as going all the way back. And in the course of the research done by your staff, you came up with some contemporary drawings of that flag, not later paintings, but actually 1775-76 drawings, right? That's correct. So Lieutenant Gray of the 2nd South Carolina did two paintings of Fort Sullivan, one supposedly during the battle and one immediately following the battle, uh, very small paintings, and they're at the Gibbs Museum of Art in Charleston. And if you look at the the crescent, the flag through those magnifying glasses, in, in one instance, the crescent's pointed on an angle towards the the, the staff, uh, much like it appears on today's flag or the one that we're most that we're most used, most used to. And then the other one. The flags, the crescents pointing the same direction, but the banners waving in another direction, and so um, that's kind of <laughs> confusing to say the least. 
And then there was a drawing done by a royal artillery officer that was on a bomb catch off the coast of Fort Sullivan during the bombardment. And a bomb catch is a ship. It's a ship. That's right. And in that image, the crescent, the points are pointed towards the staff and not at an angle up towards the top of the staff, but actually towards the staff itself. So you have just in those contemporary images that were done soon thereafter, after the battle, you've got three different versions of where that crescent was pointing. But there is a crescent in the upper left quadrant. But there is a crescent in the upper left-hand quadrant. And on neither of those images is is there any writing on the flag itself. It's just it's just dark blue with a you know, white crescent or silver crescent in the corners. Of course, gray's image is, is pencil is a pencil image, so there's no color on the on the flag itself, so you can't see. And there was no palmetto. Right. There's no palmetto on, on any okay. of those. Well, the Battle of Sullivan's Island gave us a lot of images that are with us today. I mean, for example, as, as you well know, the state seal has on it uh, a palmetto tree uh, over an uprooted oak, symbolic of the defeat of the British of the Royal Navy. So, the fact that we have a Palmetto on our state flag, uh, we can go back to that that battle. But there wasn't one. Moultrie didn't put a Palmetto tree on his on his flag. Right, that's correct. And so, so the Palmetto tree and its role in uh, making up the fortifications of Fort Sullivan, being the outer wall of Fort Sullivan, and, and the tails of of British balls bouncing off of these spongy Palmetto logs from this Palmetto log fort, is is what builds this reputation of this symbol in South Carolina history. And it becomes the dominant symbol in South Carolina history and is to this day of the two, the, the Crescent and the Palmetto. The Palmetto becomes the foremost immediately following this battle. Well, and, and, and you've got uh, poetry that was written on the eve of the Civil War and the Palmetto trees are protecting South Carolina once again from the foe, uh, Tim Rudd's poem, Henry Tenrov's poem, which is actually the state song, one of the state songs. We have several state songs. Um, And I'm not going to ask you to sing it. Uh, And I'm grateful for that. So are (laughs) are the listeners. So are the listeners. (laughs) Uh, So how do we get a palmetto tree on the state flag? Well, so the the palmetto starts showing up on flags um, during nullification. Uh, it's so the 1830s. 1830s. It's, okay. it's on flags in the 1830s. It's um, the on the flag of the Palmetto Regiment, which is the regiment South Carolina sends to the Mexican-American War. Uh, so you see it there. And that flag supposedly flies over Mexico City after the city surrenders. And you see it on banners uh, at the time of secession. Um, you see it just about everywhere. In, 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 in fact, the centerpiece of the secession banner, which was behind the podium at the secession convention, which is now hanging in the historical society, right. is a huge palmetto tree. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you have all these various, uh, and it looks very different as as you have seen in all of our presentations, as we're looking at all these different palmettos. It, there's a million types of palmettos out there. And, and that's the real tricky thing for us as a committee. Well, I was going to say there are a couple of them, Eric, remind me of somebody sticking their finger in a light socket and having a really bad hair day. I mean, Absolutely. But... We talk about the military flag going back to 1775, but South Carolina really didn't have a state flag. Most states weren't dealing with flags at that that point in their history. We did, we did not have one from the Revolution until 1861. That's right. So the, the first official state flag, or the one that's passed by the legislature, is, is, is born in early 1861, shortly after South Carolina seceded, but had not joined the Confederacy yet, so it's an independent republic, and it needs a flag. So C.J. Weston Plowden says that uh, he offers up legislation that South Carolina create a flag, have a, have a banner of its own. But Robert Barnwell Rett Jr. is really the father of the design as we know it today or something very close to what we know it today. He, on January 21st, 1861, in the House, uh, he was a representative. He, he makes a motion that the flag be, uh, be blue with a, a white palmetto in the center of it and a white in crescent in the upper left-hand corner. And um, that idea gets batted around, and what what the Senate and the House eventually come up with is a blue flag with a white crescent in the upper left-hand corner, but then a white oval in the center of the flag with a gold palmetto on top of that. And and they pass that. So that flag is the official flag of South Carolina for two days before they have second thoughts about this (laughs) and realize that's not a very attractive flag. So on January 28th, they go back to Rhett's 
suggestion to the, the flag that he had proposed. Blue flag, white palmetto, white crescent in the upper left-hand corner with the points of the crescent pointing upward. Like a pair of horns. Absolutely. Now, one thing we need to remind folks is that this time... There wasn't any modern printing of the of the material. You have a blue flag, and then the palmetto and the crescent are sewn, are hand sewn. They're cut out and they're appliqued. I guess you would right. would say. So manufacturing them is not very easy to begin with. Right, and it's not very uniform either. So so these so-called official state flags that that have, that we have samples of today, uh, two were captured by Iowa regiments when Columbia was captured on February seventeenth. 1865. Um, a very, one of them is a very large one that was hanging on the wall of the unfinished state house. And where is it now? Those are at the Iowa Historical Society. And um, both of those look very similar to stationery that we found at the Alabama Department of Archives and History sent to Benjamin Perry from uh, and Isaac Hayne. And, and on that stationery, it, it looks the same way with the palmetto tree and the crescent okay. pointed with the points now, pointed up. Why are these letters to these two South Carolinians in the Alabama archives? And we we don't know, and Alabama doesn't know how they how they came into their possession. Of but were they delegates to the to the Confederate Constitutional Convention, or why were they going to Perry? At, I mean, later he's governor, of right, course. But. Absolutely. Um, and I've contacted the Alabama Department of Archives and History and asked for some kind of explanation about how they got them, and and they're. They're kind of befuddled by it, too. It's very possible that they could have been delegates to the—they the, the, could have been in Montgomery, or one of them could have been riding from Montgomery to, to back to South Carolina, and that's how they end up in, in okay. Alabama. Now, the two flags that were captured in Columbia when Columbia, Sherman took Columbia are in the Iowa State right. Archives. Right. But doesn't the Historical Society have the Fort Walker flag that was captured by the, the folks in Massachusetts that's now— in, back in Charleston? Absolutely. So that, that flag's in Charleston. Uh, there were a number of flags that were captured around the time of the Battle of Port Royal Sound uh, and, and shortly thereafter that ended up at the Massachusetts Historical Society or were given to them uh, by Commodore Fox and ended up there. And uh, they divested themselves of all of those flags, I oh, think. Okay. Now, Fox was commander of the Union fleet, right, okay. right, and and so those flags came to him from as as these places were captured. This the flag of which you're referring to is a, was captured at Fort Walker. Uh, it had flown over Castle Pinckney. It had flown. Uh, it had been commissioned by the the German artillery, which was a Charleston unit, right. And it was one of these these kind of secession flags that was born out of. Uh, the day that's created in the days immediately following secession, December twentieth, eighteen sixty, and then ended up in the camp at Fort Walker. And when Fort Walker fell, Union sailors captured it and uh, cut large pieces off of it as souvenirs. But what was left of it uh, was placed on display in, in the U.S. Capitol in eighteen sixty-two with a number of other captured banners. We've got images of that from Frank Leslie's, and then from there, uh, after the war, it was given to the Massachusetts Historical Society, who. Um, Deaccessioned all those flags and and returned that one to South Carolina. Well, Eric is too modest, but when he was director of the South Carolina Historical Society, he helped negotiate that returning of the flag. Uh, and the folks from Massachusetts came down. They were very generous, and and of course, the flag is now back in the state, but it it does belong to the Historical Society, which is a private organization. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Eric, we've got to pause for a moment, let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's Journal, and I'm talking with Dr. Eric Emerson, uh, Director of the State Department of Archives and History, about the evolution and development of the South Carolina state flag. Okay, we've got the state flag in 1861. What about the not-so-mysterious red palmetto? Well, well, big red is a, is a, a different issue unto itself. Um, so that is a flag that was flown over the what was later called the, the Star of the West Battery or flown over fortifications um, outside of Charleston that fired on the Star of the West immediately before uh, the bombardment of Fort Sumter. The artillery pieces were manned by Citadel cadets. Uh, so the Citadels adopted that flag as, as uh, its flag. It was captured later on in the war. Then when its location was determined, the Citadel requested it on loan that it come to South Carolina and they can serve the flag. And it's on display at its alumni center in Charleston, right across the street from the stadium. 
Uh, it's a beautiful flag. It's, it's, it, you can see it on, you know, any number of stickers and, and replicas of it and things but like it, that. it was never an official flag. It was... No, it, w- it was not an official flag. It was one of those various flags that, that incorporated palmettos and crescents and various symbols of, uh, of revolutionary and later Civil War, South Carolina, uh, that appeared in all sorts of strange forms. It was... Early 1861 in Charleston would have been a great time to be a flag manufacturer <laughs> or to be an artist because you know, creativity was was uh, the order of the day. All right. So we got 1861. We have an official state flag. The war is over, Reconstruction. But not just here in South Carolina, it's not a big deal about flying state flags and, and that kind of thing. It really sort of, in the Victorian era, people began to get excited about genealogy and flags and what have you. And there is a flag that appears in the late 19th century, right? Right, right. So we think the flag that Ben Tillman presents to the, the Corps of Cadets in 1906 is, is very much like the 1861 flag. Now, that flag doesn't survive, but we think that's basically the same flag, the one that he doesn't like the looks of. And, and he comments that he would prefer it to look more like to have maybe perhaps the, the seal of South Carolina in the center of it and, and have different details other than just the palmetto and the crescent. With that letter from Charles Doggett, the head of the textile department at Clemson, to A.S. Sally, Sally firmly ensconces himself in the, in the debate and really starts driving the debate. Okay. So how did... Alex Sally was a very talented individual, but he didn't draw that flag. How did that come about? Who, who designed that? Well, it, it's a great story in itself. Sally frustrated the textile department at Clemson until they basically said, we, we can't do anything more with this design. Find your own designer and once you come up with a design, we'll start producing the flags. So he turned to a woman named Ellen Hayward Jervie, and she was an amateur artist who lived in Charleston. Um, by the time Sally approaches her about the flag, she's 31 years old. She lives with her uncle, her mother, and uh, three siblings in his house with 71 Rutledge in Charleston. Uh, I guess she would, today she'd be called a spinster. She was unmarried. But Sally knew her and had some sort of a relationship, an amiable relationship with her before that. We've the South Carolina Historical Society has amongst its collections uh, the dance cards from St. Cecilia, these balls that are thrown annually. And uh, A.S. Sally's dance card is at the South Carolina Historical Society's collections. And in 1906, he danced with Miss Jervie nine times straight, danced one through nine. And then there's a note on the card that said, visited Miss Jervie at her home. And then subsequent dance years, his dance cards would only have two or three dances with her. So... So, so in, in the turn of the century, Victorian, he was sparking her. That's he, right. We, we think in 1906, based upon the correspondence we have in our collections, uh, in one of his letters, he says, you have um, turned me down on a previous business offer. Perhaps you'll accept this one. Uh, so we think in 1906, he probably asked her to marry him, and she said no. But he approaches her after Clemson grows frustrated with him. He approaches her to design... to design a crescent and a palmetto that would go on this flag. And um, she immediately accepts. I, I think Sally had some kind of, this is a romantic gesture for Sally. For her, this is a business relationship. And he promises that he'd give her proceeds from a book that he's going to produce, the, the book that you talked about earlier on. And then he also says he'll pay her in addition to that. And that uh, wasn't a huge sum. No, no, it wasn't. But but he said all the money you could ever you could need or something to that effect in the letter, which sounds like a lot of money. So she's very anxious to get started. And she draws a crescent on her reply letter to him. So you, we've got the first sample of of her crescent. And, on, and, and what did that look like? Well, it was thin, and, and it looked very much like some of the crescents we see today on flags. That's a, it was a, as far as crescents go, it was a fairly attractive-looking crescent on that letter. That's not the crescent he ends up using on, on the flag in 1910. And so the correspondence goes back and forth between the two of them. He's hypercritical of everything she's doing in the same way he was of Clemson College, and he's trying to moderate that being critical so that he could somehow gain her favor. And one of the letters, he says that, you know, you've done very well with the design so far. If you keep this up, you can move your trunk into my house and be paid also. Um, So. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) 
we, we don't know how she responds to that, but but she keeps sending him samples. But he's, as I said, he's hypercritical. He's telling her to go to various places, look at various palmettos to create these palmettos, and everything, every drawing she has, he's he's not satisfied with, until she gets fed up with him too and says basically, look, this is the best I can do. Use it if you want to. I'm glad I made a contribution to it, and. Uh, basically calls off the business relationship. He then sends her a letter saying, basically, you should have stayed more patient with me. Uh, I can't believe you know, that you're not going to do this anymore. But he takes the Palmetto, her last Palmetto design, and takes her crescent and modifies it and does some sketching and drawing himself, puts it on a, a piece of paper and sends that off to Clemson and has them reproduce it. And then he asks them to cut her a check for $5. Um, so, did she get paid? She, she, she was paid five dollars for her trouble for you know creating these designs that would be incorporated into the state's second official state flag. But he sends her a letter in which he says, if she hadn't lost patience with him, the amount would have been double. Ooh. So he, he was he he was not uh, not successful in his uh, his uh, attempts to gain her hand in marriage after that, as you can imagine. So. Okay, so this is how we got that flag that was the official one for many years. And am I being wrong to describe that the trunk is something like a pencil? It's it's not a tractor palmetto. It's it's not, uh, and there's no usually today when we see palmettos, you have an outline of the ground beneath it in some way. You can see the ground kind of growing out from the base. Of the, this this one has nothing of that. It's cut off at the bottom. It's just a stick. Just a stick with some. Sort of some frauds. Right. And okay. Now, the legislation that was created in 1906, um, and Clemson had to produce them. So if you wanted a state flag, you had to order it from Clemson, right? Right, right. So how long did that arrangement go on? Well, from, from 1910 to 1940, Clemson produces these flags. And they have to produce them at cost. So they can't even make a profit off them. Um, and during the time when they're trying to design it, and when Sally's talking to Miss Jervy and Professor Doggett orders are piling up. And so um, they're having to meet these orders, can't make money off the selling of the flag. And so by 1940, Clemson had pretty much had enough. So they had legislation introduced that will um, do away with that, that, that would reverse the legislation saying they had to design the flag. So uh, after 1940, there's no legislation on the books regarding who should produce the flag or what it should look and like. And Mr. Sally, although he's still head of the commission, is no longer has veto power over the design. Absolutely. Absolutely. So after that, there's no official state flag. If if they had just revoked the legislative part about Clemson producing it, we'd still at least have a design for it. But the last couple of lines re- refer to that resolution from um, of uh, 1861, the state flag from 1861. So the design's done away with as well. So from 1940 to the present, the state flag has looked pretty much how it, a designer would want it to, any designer would want it to look. Well, there are there are differences. And as you mentioned, uh, Scott has brought in these different designs that he remembered. I think I suggested to go back to the tricentennial in 1970, which is one of the flag designs that we, we looked at, and you want to right. describe that? Yep. So that's that has a fuller type palmetto. There's one little frond that's kind of hanging from the bottom of, of the palmetto. It, it has a small piece of earth at the bottom of it. Um, it looks a lot like one of the designs that's being produced by manufacturers right now. There, there are two main manufacturers, and, and one of the things we've learned is manufacturers get to decide what the palmetto looks like, and they go by these standard designs they've had for a long time. So one manufacturer uses that type palmetto, and the other manufacturer uses a, a tighter kind of almost bushier, clumpier palmetto. And that those flags appear on the top of the state house or based upon who's winning the contract or for that year, who has the contract at that time. And so therein lies the variance in Palmettos that, that Scott saw when, when he first said we need to codify this. And there, there's also now a variance in color. There, there they're, they're blue, but there's a blue and there's a blue. Now, one of the things that I really found fascinating, I suggested that we find one of Moultrie's troops' uniforms. I thought maybe surely there was one in the Charleston museum uh, and have that tested by textile experts to find out what exactly was the blue. But no Moultrie 
uniforms exist. Right. That's or his correct. troops' uniforms exist. So we went to the Iowa flags, right? Right. And how is that being tested? How are, how are we coming up with what blue we know was an official state flag over 100 years ago? Well, so we, we first looked at the Iowa flags, and you, you had um, talked about those. And, and one of the problems with those is there's a certain amount of soot on those flags from either cotton bales burning before the city burned or during the burning of the city. So, so the colors, there's not really a true color that we can glean from those. What we did find was regimental flags that were presented to William Moultrie in 1776, immediately following the Battle of Fort Sullivan. And there were two flags for the 2nd South Carolina Regiment that were presented by the wife of Captain Bernard Elliott. And um, and she, when presenting the flag, she talked about the, the heroism displayed at the Battle of Fort Sullivan. Uh, one was red, one was blue. Now, the blue one survives. Uh, it was captured in 1779, immediately at the the Siege of Savannah by the 60th Royal American Regiment. The Royal American Regiment were Tories. Right. That's right. That's a, re- a regiment of Tories that was later consolidated into what would be the Royal Green Jackets, a British regiment, a longstanding British regiment. And the captured flag went to the Royal Green Jacket Museum in Tar- the UK. Tarleton. <laughs> that's right. Green Jackets. That's, right. that's Bannister Tarleton's right. unit. Okay. So they go to the UK, and they're there until 1990 when uh, they deaccession that flag, and it comes back to the States, and it's jointly owned by the Smithsonian and the State Museum. And that's a flag that we can get an actual analysis of color off of. And so uh, we've been working with the Smithsonian to do that, but um, but we haven't had as much luck because the Smithsonian, they've They've been on furlough, and so uh, they couldn't do an in-depth color analysis. But Clemson University is doing an in-depth color analysis of that flag for us. And the other thing on that flag that's really interesting is there's a drum in the center of it, and there's a crescent on that drum. So we're having them reproduce that crescent. Clemson's going to reproduce that crescent for us, which we'll use as the the crescent for the official flag that that uh, hopefully will be codified at the end of this process. Now, we need to let people know is that we will— this committee will present our findings to the General Assembly, and then it's up to the General Assembly to decide what they want to do. Right. That, that's correct. And so what we're trying to do is draw on historic colors that from this flag, that the historic crescent from this flag, and then a historic palmetto that we have from, from other drawings in, in the past. And uh, it's, it's really interesting that there's technology today that, that you can analyze colors without you know, really destroying the flag, you can use uh, various methods to do that. Uh, now, the flag that was captured has, has faded, of course, some some amount. But modern technology can somehow figure out what it would have been, right? I, they, it can estimate what it, what it would have been. And um, color is a, a big thing, a big part of this, one of the three aspects of this flag we have to determine. I think when the legislation first was, was made public, there was some misunderstanding that the five of us were going to redesign a flag, design a completely new flag uh, for the state of South Carolina and got some folks upset, and rightly so. I mean, the Palmetto and the, the Crescent are inextricably interwoven with our with our, with our our history, certainly our, our visual history. But as a group, as we have debated this and examined this, everything we're doing is based upon documentable historical material, visual evidence as well as written, but mostly visual evidence, which I think is even more important than a description might have been. Uh, when you just say a palmetto and a crescent and a piece of legislation, there's no specific as to what that's going to look like. Absolutely. Yeah. I think we've, we've found good representative samples of the things that we think should be on the state flag. And um, it's it's been a great process. I mean, I've, I've really enjoyed it. There are a lot of meetings, you know, that that none of us like to go to, but th- these have been meetings we've really enjoyed in the process of, of trying to find a historical flag. has been really interesting. Eric, we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that I'm talking with Dr. Eric Emerson, director of the South Carolina Department of Archives and History, who chairs the committee that has been charged with coming up with a design to regularize the production of our state flag. So where are we now in the in the process? Well, so... Um, Clemson University had a really 
big role, played a big role in the design of the last state flag, the last official state flag. And so we've turned to the graphic design department at Clemson. Um, Dr. Sam Ingram heads that, and he's been very helpful in um, helping us to recreate that crescent off of that drum that was on the second South Carolina flag uh, that was captured uh, and recreate that color that from that captured flag itself. And then um, they're also working on crafting a palmetto from some drawings that we sent to them, some historical drawings. And um, as soon as we get something back from them, we'll, we'll analyze that and see if we need to make any other tweaks. And then, then we have to talk about dimensions, uh, size, and we can do that with flag manufacturers who, who use that, um, who are familiar with that technology and, and know exactly about size and things like that. And then we'll present that to the General Assembly uh, as part of a report. It sounds simple, size and dimension, but how large the crescent, how large the palmetto in terms of relate, and how far apart they are right. has been one of the issues over time. Absolutely. Right. And you, and you can see it on, um, for example, the flag that the, the Iowa Regiment, the 13th Iowa captured um, in Columbia, it, you could tell how difficult it was in 1861 or 1862 to, to be able to craft a flag where the proportions are right with the palmettos and the crescent versus the size of the flag. And that is a huge flag. How, how big is it? It's or was just, it? It was 20 feet long. It's, it's a massive flag. It's a massive garrison flag. And that was, it was captured and it was hanging in the state house. It was on the side of the state house, on the, actually. On the, the, the unfinished, uh, on, on the side of the unfinished state house, and there was another one that was captured, another garrison f- flag that they captured at the same time. There's a third example of that that's housed at the Confederate Relic Room here in Columbia. They have a, a sample of that same type flag. Well, and folks, a garrison flag is an overlarge flag, uh, which usually is only flown at, on special occasions. Right. As we've gone through all of this, as a historian of the state, what has surprised you, you found interesting, different? Well, the, the, the research into Sally and the creation of that second flag has been really interesting to us. Um, a staff member of the Department of Archives and History wrote a, a wonderful little book called A Flag Worthy of Your State and People that was published by the Department of Archives and History. Her name was Wilma Waits, and, and it was really it's a wonderful little history of the state flag. But when Wilma wrote that, the, the Sally letters hadn't been fully processed yet. And so this correspondence between Sally and Miss Jervy and her role in the creation of the flag uh, is something that's been you know, unknown up until this point. It's, it's certainly not anything she ever talked about, and it's nothing that Sally ever talked about wanting to take credit for everything himself. So um, it's that's been a fascinating story, a fa- fascinating human interest story to it. And then following up on her later career, I mean, she became a librarian at the College of Charleston, and... She retired in 1949 at the same time A.S. Sally left archives, and at the same time J. Harold Easterby took over archives, and he was a professor at the College of Charleston. And all of that appeared in one issue of the Charleston newspaper, announcing all three of those things in the same paragraph. And these these three lives that were kind of intertwined with this one agency in this one period, I, I found it was really strange that she retired at the exact same time that he left archives and history, uh, even though he had long since been married and things like that. Well, I gathered this is talking with the late Dan Hollis and George Rogers, uh, people like that. Sally was pretty well forced out. I mean, he didn't want to retire. Right, absolutely. He had tried to have legislation passed that would allowed him to remain employed by the state as the oldest state employee. Regulations at the time that said if you were 70, you had to retire. Well, he was well over 70. And uh, so the Barnwell Ring, who had always been closely tied to, uh, introduced legislation that would allow him to remain in a state employee. And uh, Strom Thurmond, who was, of course, you know, actively worked against the Barnwell Ring, you know, uh, worked against that legislation and made sure that it didn't pass. And uh, the day it was uh, voted down. Uh, Sally walked out of the building, handed the keys to, to Mr. Hudson, his uh, kind of uh, second command there. and uh, Another and, wonderful uh, character. That's right. He, he, Mr. Hudson was a great character. And uh, uh, supposedly uh, Mr. Easterby was across the street with his son watching all this happen from a restaurant and uh, watched Sally walk away and then walked into the building and Mr. Hudson handed the keys to Mr. Easterby and, and turned the organization over to him. Eric, you, you, you mentioned the Barnwell Ring. The Barnwell Ring, 
referred to political figures from Barnwell County, especially uh, Saul Blott, who was Speaker of the House, Edgar Brown, who was President Pro Tem of the Senate. Winchester Smith is often forgotten, but he was a representative from Barnwell as well, and he was very much a part of the ring. And if you've got the Speaker of the House and the President Pro Tem of the Senate, uh, who can control legislation in those days, um, that's the de facto government of South Carolina. Strom Thurmond, when he ran for governor, ran against the Barnwell ring, and he won. Mr. Blott did not stand for Speaker of the House. He had an interregnum, so to speak. When Thurmond was governor, Saul Blott was not Speaker of the House. Tom Pope from Newberry and then uh, Mr. Littlejohn, who became Chief Justice with the two speakers of the, of the House. So that's fascinating that Sally is connected to the Barnwell Ring, but not really because being from Orangeburg County, the family relationships all blend in. Barnwell, some part of Aiken, Orangeburg, Calhoun. The ring was really larger than than the, the three individuals, but they were the key figures. Absolutely. The Sally papers are at the archives. Is that because he was director? Because I thought didn't think the archives had. I guess it's his official correspondence. Isn't right, it? that's his official correspondence as as, direct, okay. as secretary of the history commission, okay. and so we have the uh, correspondence of all the directors there, uh, in their capacity as state employees. Okay, and his private papers are at the historical society in Charleston. Now. Did you do that research at one of your staff? Well, when we first started looking at this flag, we, we started going through um, the Sally Papers again. And uh, Wade Dorsey, who's a supervisor, one of our uh, archival supervisors, found this correspondence between Ellen Hayward Jervy and, and A.S. Sally. And he's the one really responsible for uncovering this story. He's a great researcher. He found this and immediately did some background on uh, Miss Jervy and, uh, and unearthed what had been, at, until that time, really a an unknown or at least not spoken about aspect of the story. Well, it's, to me, it's a fascinating story in terms of the flag, but it's also a very South Carolina, uh, Southern politics kind of kind of story. Uh, the romantic twist, whether there was one or, or not, I found also fascinating. Yeah. When, when you were talking about the older existing flags and the Bernard B one, for example, it's just Bernard B's, that's a silk flag, is it Right. That's, that's a silk regimental flag. Both, both of those flags that she presented to the regiment were silk flags, whereas we talked about the, the garrison flags, the really overly large flags would have been made of wool or cotton bunting well, or well, cotton uh, bunting. Oh, and okay. So, well, cotton bunting is not very thick, but I mean, right. wool, I mean, that's, uh, are we going to specify a material? Well, <laughs> If, if probably, I'm, probably not. I'm just teasing you, man. Well, well, what I've learned as part of this process is that the color that we choose, whatever it is, is going to show up different if it's nylon, or or it would show up differently as silk, or it would or would look different or as or cotton or wool. And so it it the way that that uh, the spectrometer that would you would use to analyze color, the way it reacts to those different fibers uh, is is fascinating. So it, it, it would be, it looks different. And we've seen samples of this to where that the same color on indigo on silk looks different than indigo on on those wool flags, you know, garrison flags or something like that. In, and, in fact, the blue in that pamphlet that Sally did is so dark, it's almost black. It's very, very, very dark. It, uh, it's described as indigo, but it's not the indigo that I have seen, even from 18th and 19th century fabrics. Right. Yeah, it, it's, it is a very dark color. And it's it's interesting. I, I wonder how dark, and we can, we're getting an analysis of this, how dark that regimental flag would have been from 1776 before. So it's three years from the time that it's finished until the time it's captured um, at Savannah. It would have faded a great deal from that, but even having faded, it still looks like a very dark blue. In fact, today, if you look at that flag, as you've seen images of it, it looks like the flag that flies over the state house in color-wise. So it probably was a good bit darker than that at the time. And of course, indigo is the thing that's driving all this. It's driving the color of the uniforms. Moultrie makes note of this, and it's driving the color of the flags. And it's the official color of South Carolina. But it's not the color that's being used on South Carolina flags right now, something we, we uncovered. If, um, it's the color that's being used if you had a Pantone attached to it is 282. And when we talk to the flag manufacturers who are 
making South Carolina flags a day, they said the color is 282 Old Glory Blue. Of course, you and I know that that's historically not accurate for for, for our purposes because, <laughs> you know, <laughs> using Old Glory Blue for the South Carolina color, which is officially indigo, mm-hmm. and, and, and it's been codified as indigo, is not exactly the same thing. Well, folks may wonder why indigo, you know, go back to the 18th century, it was one of the two great commercial crops that was the basis of the state's booming economy that helped make South Carolina the wealthiest colony in in British North America. Now, one of the ironies, of course, we always think about a dark blue, and I used to tell my classes, think blue jeans, not faded, not ripped, not torn, but think of blue jeans, and that's pretty much an indigo blue, although actually... The dye stuff, indigo, the color could range from lilac almost to black. Right, right. Uh, but we think of that that dark, rich blue, not royal blue, which is kind of is lighter. But right. But it's, it, one of the most fascinating parts of the Sally correspondence between he and the head of uh, the textile department at Clemson is about the color blue and. Clemson's trying to produce samples of a blue that they believe he's referring to or describing, and they're constantly getting it wrong. And, and one of the one of the great lines from Sally in his letters is, "It should be the blue of a lady's silk dress," which was a great deal of frustration for for Charles Doggett, who had no idea what kind of blue a lady's silk dress should should be. And um, he so he sends a sample to Sally, and Sally writes back, "No, that's way too gaudy. No lady would be seen in a blue that color." And then he says, well, it shouldn't be quite royal blue, but it shouldn't be navy blue. And he's going back and forth. We'll see if Miss Jervy hadn't been fired, she could have told <laughs> Mr. Sally what the color of a lady's blue dress should be. Now, one of the things we as a committee found out during our, our first meeting, and there were some manufacturers there present, the people who currently have state contracts, we come up with the perfect design which, of course, we will, but we can't copyright that, right? Right. That's That's been the debate. It's, it, it, it's our understanding you can't copyright a flag, a flag design like that. But what we can do is we can uh, create regulations to where when people bid on those through procurement that they have to follow what whatever standard the state establishes for what the flag should look like, what the crescent should look like, what the palmetto should look like. And as long, if they want the contract, then they have to follow those parameters for color, crescent, and palmetto. Well, and of course, one thing none of us can prevent is the design. a design can be pirated in China or wherever and produced, and but once there is an official design, I'm hoping that that folks will uh, look at what's flying on their, not just the state buildings, but on county courthouses, uh, other public properties, and don't buy the mock-offs, the knock-offs that really trivialize our state flag. There's some really bad, cheap knock-offs that frankly are insulting to what the Palmetto and Crescent and our state flag is supposed to be. Absolutely. And and we, we had a sample of one of those at our, our last meeting. We, we had two flags that had been under contract and one that had not, that, you know, that the color was off, that everything about it was off. And and it was one of those where dimensions made a difference. They were, they were out of proportion to the flag. Anyway, it's been a fascinating journey into our state's history, and this is where it's, it's not just the documentation which historians love to go to in terms of letters and what have you, but it's the visuals. Your staff coming up with, for example, that Englishman's view of the flag from 1775. I mean, that's that's a wonderful primary source, as are the flags that are in Iowa and the flag that's in, in Charleston. And then to discover something that I thought talking with Roger Stroop and the people who are in the 2nd South Carolina Regiment, the reenactors, I thought surely they were basing their uniforms on a, a uniform that was in the Charleston Museum. Right. Taint there. <laughs> right. right. So where we are early in 2019, we're still working. To, we're waiting for the material research from Clemson. 
We're probably not going to have anything from the Smithsonian at this point, right? I, I don't believe we'll get a whole lot more from them based upon uh, what their, their workload is and, and our timelines. Okay. And our timeline is we have it, it was February the 1st. Has it been extended? Uh, well, so the proviso will last uh, until June 30th, but I, I believe there's efforts to introduce legislation that would codify whatever we come up with before the crossover period, before the... Now, what's the crossover well, So it's, it's the date in which uh, you could take it up this session oh, okay. and you wouldn't have to take it up the next session. And that's April the 1st, right? right? Eric, Alfred's giving us the wind-up sign. Any last words for our listeners before we sign off? No, it's, um, it's been a pleasure being on the show. And I, I hope South Carolinians... Uh, are, are proud of what we come up with. I hope they're proud of the work that we, we've done at the end of this process. And uh, I, I think we've, I think we'll come up with something everybody can agree is is an attractive and appropriate, historically appropriate flag. And if there are any questions, there are official records of our meetings, and they can check in with those at the South Carolina Department of Archives and History. That's correct. Okay. Dr. Eric Emerson, Director of the South Carolina Department of Archives and History, thank you so much for being back with us on The Journal. Oh, thank you, Walter. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. It has been a fascinating experience working with Eric Emerson and the other members of our committee to come up with the design to standardize our state flag and the historical evidence we've looked at, but also the personal stories that really helped shape South Carolina history in terms of our visual presentation. Why the Palmetto? Why the Crescent? What does it mean? It has been a journey that I have thoroughly enjoyed. And once again, it shows that South Carolina has a wonderfully fascinating history. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETB Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.